Welcome to the Fright Lab. I'm Lucas Yoakum, and with us tonight is the man responsible for keeping me on track, Mr. Joseph Wren. How are we doing tonight, Joe? We are, as always, thankful that you, the gruesome person listening to this podcast, are here listening, and good evening to you, all of you gruesome people. Did you all enjoy the It Follows episode? I know I did. So we're going to step away from our normal format tonight to discuss a more broad subject, let's say. Instead of focusing on a single film or a handful of films that are kind of along the same line, we're going to be talking about, well, a somewhat bristly subject amongst horror commentators. Joe, have you ever heard of the concept of elevated horror? These are words that have been put together many times, and when we start talking about genres and subgenres, this comes up on Discography Discussion and all the podcasts at DiscussMetal.com. When you get down to that level, you have to ask yourself, does it matter? Does it really matter? Do we need to break this genre down even further? Yes, we do. I think... Elevated horror is a good change of pace that really only started, what, 20 years ago? Well, maybe. Let's let's kind of rewind the tape a little. The term elevated horror has been thrown around a lot, specifically in the last five years. And anytime I hear someone talking about a new genre of, well, any sort of art, really, I end up feeling kind of conflicted. The discussion around elevated horror is so messy and nebulous, I confess that I am stumbling a bit to even talk meaningfully on this subject. I became inspired to talk about this after reading an article on HorrorObsessive.com, which will of course be linked in the show notes. Uh, That caused me to then go on to read a bunch more about the subject, trying to follow up across multiple mediums and, well... It just led me to be in this conflicted place I'm at now. I'm going to be uh, sharing links in the show notes to all of these sources that I'm going to be talking about so you can you know, give them a read and make up your own mind. Now, follow me as Joe and I try to kind of untie these Gordian knots. Again, we're departing from our normal format for this episode. We're not going to be focusing on like single movies here. Instead, we're examining a number of tendencies within modern horror filmmaking, and that will include... Uh, us discussing in brief terms a handful of movies so don't worry this won't turn into some holy like pedantic screed on my behalf i also want to try to answer or at least kind of suss out the details of a handful of questions to start what the hell is elevated horror anyway we also need to ask the question that joe has given us his opinion on is the tendency towards elevated horror quote-unquote good for the the genre at all. And I want to sort of ask one last thing. Why are horror fans so opinionated about this question? Horror is having a quote-unquote moment right now. Back in 2018, Jordan Peele won an Oscar for the best original screenplay, that is, for the movie Get Out. Now, not only uh, is Peele the first African-American to win an Oscar in that category, It was an Oscar for the first film he both wrote and directed. For a basically mainstream filmmaker, that's a huge win. And let's be honest here, okay? Get Out is a really good movie. There's a good chance that you've seen it, so I don't need to sing its praises here. 
It's a great flick, and it deserves all the respect it's earned. And also in 2018, Guillermo del Toro won a Best Film Oscar, as well as a BAFTA, the British Academy of Film and Television Arts, for The Shape of Water. And while that's not, strictly speaking, a horror movie in the vein of Get Out, del Toro cut his teeth in the horror world. The Shape of Water is way closer to Frankenstein than it is Ladybird, you know? Hollywood has also released Robert Eggers' The Witch and The Lighthouse onto the world. There's a good chance your more quote-unquote normal relatives have seen Midsommar, and they may have even seen Hereditary. And at the time of this recording, in the last few months, we have seen the Predator prequel, Prey, the remake of Hellraiser. Both of those have garnered better critical response than I would have expected. It's tempting to ask, what's going on here? But the reality of it is that horror movies are getting more and more respect, in large part because these movies are really well made. They're smart. They have inspired directing and acting. They are, in short, good movies. Now, we're all fans of horror, and that means we are smart, self-aware, attractive, and most importantly, humble people. Speak for yourself. (laughs) (laughs) And thus, as horror fans, we've known for a long time that horror movies can be well-written and beautiful, as well as being a gore-soaked squirm fest. None of us are that surprised that Get Out, The Witch, or The New Hellraiser would cause fun and insightful critical response. But I think some of us are a little surprised that it happened at all, or at least that it took as long as it has. I'm well past 30 years old, so I have some distinct memories of the boom in other horror trends. I was a little kid when the Freddy, Jason, Michael Myers slasher thing happened, and I remember seeing VHS box art at local video stores for B-grade slashers and monster flicks. Coming of age in the late 90s, I remember the rise and fall of Scream. I saw Gore Verbinski's The Ring in the theater. And then the J-horror explosion with the original Ringu, Juan, etc. Hell, I even remember renting Tomie movies at an original blockbuster in my neighborhood. Don't forget Audition. Oh, man, (laughs) once seen, never forgotten. (laughs) You know, this isn't supposed to be Grandpa Lucas's horror nostalgia corner. The point I'm trying to make here, horror fans have known for a long time that horror can be highbrow and and has been that way basically forever. So the term elevated horror for many of us is a little laughable. So then let's answer the question. What the hell is Elevated Horror? A five-second Google search about Elevated Horror will generate a stunning amount of articles, all arguing a number of valid and often conflicting points. Coming from a Vanity Fair article, the Elevated Horror discussion peaked in the latter half of the 2010s as titles like The Witch, Get Out, and Hereditary made waves. But horror aficionados and some critics pushed back against the notion that these films are doing something entirely new. Okay. So this is a recurring trend in that conversation about elevated horror, that movies like The Witch, Hereditary, Midsommar, Get Out, etc. are all examples of a new subset of films. Okay, so coming from horror obsessive, in general terms, elevated horror refers to films that attempt to upset you emotionally 
tending to focus on dramatic elements over blood, gore, and jump scares. Okay, those are helpful parameters, I guess, but I also don't know that I entirely agree. And there's a claim made in a CBR article. Elevated horror refers to movies that don't rely heavily on jump scares or gore, but are so emotionally and psychologically disturbing that they traumatize even the most seasoned of horror buffs. Many of the films seem to contain allegorical meanings. Okay, so these movies are basically, like, ultra-scary? Uh, don't get me wrong. Hereditary and Get Out, for instance, are both really well-made and have some deeply disturbing scenes and imagery. But to say that they traumatize seasoned horror fans feels, I don't know, man, off? But I will agree uh, that many of these movies are more allegorical than literal. These movies do tend to talk about trauma, loss, grief, and alienation, you know, that sort of thing. So, yeah, that's helpful, too. So we have a rough image, right? They're more intellectually focused horror films, relying less on gore and more on psychological issues, you know, to cause distress. Fair enough. But there is one thing that gets left out of this discussion. It feels a bit like an elephant in the room, but almost all of the elevated horror films you see referenced were released by major mainstream you know, production houses to major mainstream audiences. Midsommar, The Witch, Get Out, Hereditary, great movies all, but they are essentially sanctioned by the Hollywood establishment. There's also Candyman, anything Jordan Peele has done recently. I've heard the term elevated horror, and I have to say, I think it's bullshit to say because you made a scary movie that's just a good movie, that's somehow elevated. That sets the precedence that horror movies are just about the gore, and I don't think that's the case. I think some of the scariest films you've ever seen are still some of the best movies. Need I remind you of The Thing from Another World? Okay, so you're you're kind of hitting on something that I, I've been thinking about a lot here, you know, and okay, I know it sounds like I'm just trying to show up for my like proverbial team here, but I feel like I'm defending a musical subgenre like punk, metal, goth, post-punk, uh, that sort of thing. You know, it reminds me of silly arguments I had in high school about which bands were better, right? So, uh, Joe, with a recent episode from Discography Discussion, you talked about the issue of gatekeeping in metal. Does the question of elevated horror sound just like that same argument just about horror movies? Anytime you break down subgenres or you put up those walls, to me, it's fans of something that has become mainstream trying to separate themselves from the people that are just jumping on the bandwagon. The best example and the easiest example will be the Black Album by Metallica. The fans, the core fans of Metallica that had been there since the very beginning, they hated it and they talked about how it wasn't thrash metal and this is just mainstream and people are on the bandwagon now and it's not cool to listen to this band anymore because they wrote good songs and have been doing it for a decade like the band can't progress. So when you talk about elevated horror, you're putting a definition on what is good filmmaking. When you say elevated horror to me, at least in the past 20 years, that says someone who is a fan of horror decided to start making horror movies. And because they're a fan, those movies are good. 
You know, the, the interesting thing there, uh, one, with regards to Metallica, is, you know, the, the eternal argument around the Black Album. There is no eternal argument around St. Anger. And there never will be. And there never will be. I remember, uh, <laughs> I, I don't, you know, Joe, you've been doing discography discussion for many years, and I remember listening to, a, it was one of the first episodes where you talked about Metallica. Now, uh, for fans of of my show who are not maybe metal fans, maybe don't know their music history, uh, the band Metallica and their legal team are highly litigious. They do not let any, un, what they think of as unverified or unallowed usage of their music to get out. So I remember you guys did this bit early on where it's like, okay, we can't play any Metallica in the background of this conversation, but we're just going to pipe this into your headphones and we want everyone to react. And the instant you hit the the opening bit on the song Frantic, the opening track on St. Anger, <laughs> everyone, you just hear everyone just groan because boy that's terrible so you know you never hear discussion of that but also at the same time uh one of the things that never comes up is there are a lot of people who grew up listening to metallica you know and justice for all which you know dreadful mixing aside is, is a good album uh or ride the lightning or uh or you know the, the classic seminal master of puppets and that inspired them to play hard rock or heavy metal or whatever. But there's also a lot of people who heard the Black Album at a formative time, and they went on to play in metal or hard rock bands because that album hit them like a ton of bricks. It's a good album. I can understand why people, you know, feel the way they do about it. But at the same time, you know, I kind of wonder with, with horror, because, you know, all the horror movies I saw initially when I was young, they, they weren't exactly what you would call deep intellectual fare, right? Uh, one of the first horror movies I remember seeing was the Frank Henenlotter film uh, uh, Brain Damage, which, okay, it's a fun movie still. I think it still has some value, but the special effects are a bit weird and it's really gross. I mean, Henenlotter made Basket Case and- It's a great uh, movie. Yeah, Basket Case is awesome. It's such a good movie. I think people really overlook it, but- terrifying effects too yeah for the time period the, i mean even now the, the special effects are kind of uncanny in a way even though they're silly they're kind of uncanny uh, i can't make the same statement about brain damage it's it's worth seeing it's cool and it has some neat stuff going on but it's a hen and lauder film and it makes you feel pretty gross <laughs> but that having been said like my early memories of horror aren't you know it's, it's subspecies and brain damage and other movies like that because that was that was what was available and that's what my friends wanted to see but i went on to like a much deeper fair stuff that's maybe a little metaphorically a bit more chewy so i don't know man that that's an interesting question you know i i heard someone say that it's easier to borrow inspiration from the past than it is to innovate something new and there is something to be said about that thinking. You know, from kitchen knives to clothes to creative trends, you see this. It's easier, in a functional sense, to just reiterate the same thing over and over again. If nothing else, it proves itself to be profitable. And we all know that most major companies, entertainment companies especially, are more concerned with their bottom line than they are with creative innovation. That fact explains most of the booms in horror media since, like, the 1970s. Some of you will remember how many horror movies in the 80s were just slashers of various quality, right? Well, that's because a handful of really good late 70s and early 80s movies were kind of proto-slashers. We're still working to shake that stigma off of the genre now. 
I'm surprised by how many people who I know personally who still think that horror is just like a Freddy Krueger clone character or movie. And in a way, at one point, those people weren't wrong. It's the explanation of why the most popular formula for film success for a long time now has been comic book movies. And it's worth noting that a company like Disney basically wears the crown there. They're tastemakers in a really big way. The formula is really starting to show itself, though. Oh, yeah. yeah. The less said about that, the better. And we'll kind of talk <laughs> about that in an, in an upcoming upcoming motherfucker. You're absolutely correct. And the less said about that, the better right now. But we are going to talk about that in an upcoming episode. You know, one of the things that I think is so interesting along this line of, of ideation is that it misses something about modern horror. I remember the dark days where the faculty, a, a movie I somewhat enjoy still and enjoyed at the time that it came out was a shockingly popular horror flick. And if you wanted something outside of the Hollywood machine, it was off to your local blockbuster, or if you still had one, a neighborhood video store for like a B flick. But a lot of what I'm seeing in regards to elevated horror reminds me a lot of those movies that have kind of already existed prior till now. For instance, Hereditary follows a lot of the same pacing of The Exorcist, to say nothing of the outlines of the subject matter of the movie. Uh, Eggers' The Lighthouse, in terms of imagery and pacing, is like barely even a horror movie, really. Sure, there's some really spooky stuff in that movie, and the pacing of that film, it's like a nine-ton weight on your chest. But I struggle to call it a horror movie in the strictest sense. Or a movie that I consider kind of like a forgotten modern horror gem uh, is The Cure for Wellness. It imitates so much of the pacing of what we call psychological thrillers from the 1980s and early 1990s. For the most part, the movie has this slow glide up to the end, building tension until the pop of the final moment of the movie. And weirdly, I think you can draw a slight line from Get Out to The Cure for Wellness. Maybe not in terms of plot, they are very different in that regard, but the pacing and the immersion from one world into another with different metaphysics and cultural norms, I think you get what I'm saying. And I just want to throw this comment in here. I, I was scrolling back through some post of mine on some social media outlet, and I found a comment I had made while re-watching The Cure for Wellness where I said that The Cure for Wellness is pastel suspiria. Fans of The Cure for Wellness will know exactly what I'm talking about there. I like you brought up the faculty and just didn't explain it. That's the thing about horror. Horror is supposed to be anything that you want. It's supposed to be scary. It's supposed to be funny. It's supposed to be awkward. It's supposed to be terrifying. Every emotion is in the playbook of horror. Everybody's focusing right now on horror scary. But even what Jordan Peele is doing, like... I, I, I'll say it. Get Out is funny. Oh, it's, it's an it, absurd concept, and that's why it works. Oh, Jordan Peele, his comedic roots show in that movie. There are moments where I gut laughed at that film because they were just so perfectly timed. I mean, Peele's a great comedian as well as kind of a great horror thinker, I guess, for, for lack of a better word. You know, there's this common sentiment amongst horror fans as well as like more insightful critics regarding this whole elevated horror thing 
An article by Nicholas Barber uh, that he published in the BBC uh, came out entitled, Is Horror the Most Disrespected Genre? And it hits the nail sharply on the head. I'm quoting pretty heavily from this article here, so I apologize for that in advance. I'm including a link to that article in the show notes because I think you have to read it if you're interested in this subject at all. From the article, quote, More thoughtful and experimental than the average scary movie, these films have prompted journalists to brand them not just elevated horror, but post-horror, smart horror, horror-adjacent, anything but horror. But horror devotees aren't happy about what they see as a patronizing and reductive snub of the genre they adore. Maybe they're right. Maybe these elevated horror films are simply horror films that happen to have been well-received, and the term, quote, elevated horror, shouldn't be applied to any film that isn't set in a lift or on a mountaintop. But a quick internet search reveals that it wasn't coined in a response to movies like, say, The Babadook or The Witch. Elevated Horror appears on a message board in 2010, and in 2012, someone else refers to the term as the hot new expression bandied about by Hollywood executives. What it articulates is the film industry's perennial ambivalence towards horror, the genre it can't live with, but can't live without. End quote. Given that our audience is a group of insightful people, we all know this. We all know that La Llorona and The Love Witch are amazing movies. They're modern movies, and I think we reject the term elevated to describe them. They're just good movies. But you know what? Let's Scare Jessica to Death is a high-concept phantasmagorical nightmare movie. And it's as high-minded and as experimented as any other good movie. But it was released in 1971. But I'm not done here. The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari was released in 1920 and is still as high concept in terms of its twists. For those who have never seen it, I can't recommend it enough. It feels refreshingly modern. It's also one of the standards of this is how you create a world that is just tilted. Pun intended. <laughs> yes, I mean, literally and metaphorically. So if elevated horror has therefore always existed, then so has elevated comedy and elevated drama, right? I think that means the word elevated is just me trying to say I'm smarter than you. Well, the fact of the matter is that cinema has always had that smarter side, right? And it also has a, a less intellectual side as well. High-minded comedy is right next to slapstick in most listings on streaming services, and the same is true of horror. Then again, I want to remind you all of that point made by my own personal patron saint, Werner Herzog. Cinema's history is that of a carnival attraction and not a scholastic environment. Maybe high-minded cinema is the exception then, which is fine, I think. But then, that doesn't make elevated horror into a new thing or really even a thing at all. Colm Russell from Far Out Magazine makes the point beautifully. Without the ground for existence, the term elevated horror is redundant, reserved for those who simply believe themselves to be above a genre that they deem to be trashy, with only the overt intelligence of such modern movies being worth their time. End quote. 
There's a tendency amongst people within smaller fandoms to try and defend their love of a thing. And I get it. I was once called all sorts of ugly names for my hobbies and aesthetic interests from grade school, really, up until college. So I'm sympathetic for wanting to go to bat for your perceived team. But recall back to some of our earliest episodes. There shouldn't be ever be a sense of guilty pleasures, right? You enjoy what you enjoy. And unless your particular interest is causing someone tangible harm, you aren't then doing anything wrong. Do I understand people who dedicate all their free time to like video games or auto restoration? No, no, I don't actually. And anyone who enjoys auto restoration is free to call my love of horror films ridiculous. And I'll likely laugh with you about that. I kind of buy the idea that anyone who uses the term elevated horror really just means horror I can admit to enjoying. But I think that's just bizarre. A lot of the horror movies I enjoy are pretty high concept and psychologically focused. But I love a good ghost story too, as well as a handful of slashers, creature features, stuff like that. Obviously, I own it, given that you are listening to this episode and this podcast. I also don't think this is a cause for some sort of like genre-based crusade either. It's a silly social trend that I still hear about from time to time, and it grates me. Hell, the silly trend that grates me sometimes could be the name of a new show for Joe and I. I'll put that on the list. Okay. But if you're like me, and you find it annoying when people act like horror or sci-fi or action or whatever thing is somehow beneath consideration... There's a thing that I would, I think you should do. My idea is this. Learn to be a good critic of media. It's not enough to say, I like this, or I think this sucks. Taste is subjective, but learn to talk about why you enjoy things. Take a few minutes to learn a little about the history of a genre, or maybe the back catalog of an actor or director you enjoy. Maybe spend some time down the rabbit hole of a particular subgenre or the cinema of just a country in general. Ultimately, I recommend just not being a passive consumer of media. There's a lot of companies and groups who are happy for you to just accept what movie studios and multifaceted corporations pour into a media ecosphere, but you are not required to sit and take it. Something that I intend on talking about in this show is my love of video stores. I think we're now kind of living in another golden period like that era back back in the day of the availability for indie media. Sure, you might have to pan through a lot of silt to find the gold in that stream, but let's be honest, is that any better than the mainstream side of media? And this isn't just me spitting on, you know, mainstream media companies and platforms. Those precursors to what we've been calling elevated horror, stuff like Verbinski's remake The Ring, that was a major studio success. Doesn't make it any less of an important and exciting movie, though. Discretion and insight are always my suggestions. Learn what you love, why you love it, and what pieces of media are going to match your tastes. I try to apply that sort of thinking to my own media diet, and that really saves me a lot of time, if nothing else. I mostly don't like mainstream comedies, for instance. Therefore, I don't watch them. I might miss the odd good movie here and there, but that thinking has saved me a lot of time in terms of entertainment. You and I disagree about this term. Guilty pleasures. I get it. A lot of people say that when they don't want to take ownership of 
something they enjoy. But I don't think that's as common today as it once was. When you say guilty pleasure to me, you're saying, and I'm going to define it right now, a guilty pleasure is something that is objectively bad that you can still find joy and entertainment in. And I get it. Some people say everything is good to someone, so that means it's okay. No. Some things are just bad, and and that's okay. It's okay that we don't all agree on what is good, what is bad. But the point of this conversation and the point of this episode is be able to talk about the things you like. Don't just hide behind your own tastes and say, I don't know how to communicate what I enjoy, so I'm just going to haul up in my room and only enjoy what I enjoy by myself because nobody can really appreciate this the same way that I do. That's not the point. The point is it's fun to talk about these things and it's fun to enjoy things, but sometimes you got to have that guilty pleasure. You say you don't like mainstream comedies. I say, who wrote it? Because just because they put 50 million into it doesn't mean it's going to be any better or worse than anything else written by Bill Hader. Okay. Maybe that's true, right? I, I, but I want to kind of offer my side argument to that is, uh, I believe it was uh, Frederick Nietzsche who once said that a sense of humor is just schadenfreude with a clear conscience. This idea that, you know, if you're laughing at something, it's privately because you sort of maybe enjoy the, the pain behind it. <laughs> so for instance, I remember years ago before I had actually seen the movie for the first time, I had seen that uh, Tommy Wiseau's The Room was showing uh, at the late lamented Tivoli Theater, and I thought, you know what the fuck, I've got nothing better going on on a Friday night. Let's go, let's go see this. It was sold out within minutes of it being announced. I had no idea that it sold out that quickly. Well, years later, I uh, found it somewhere and watched it. I might have been streaming somewhere, maybe. I don't remember. I remember thinking, this movie is allegedly the worst film ever made. How bad can it be? The first, like, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes of it, I was like, yeah, this is a bad movie, but the worst film ever made? I don't know about all that. No, 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 no. I got about 35 minutes in, and I realized Tommy Wiseau's The Room, I don't know if it's the worst film ever made, but it is a shockingly, diabolically, unbelievably bad movie. Just in every respect, it's awful. Here you go. This is the worst film ever made. God help us all. <laughs> well, I guess I know what I'm doing later this week. So uh, y- you, of course, can't see this. This is an audio media. Joe just handed me a DVD for a film called Serum, a Steve Frankie film. Don't do it. I won't even let you take it out of this house. That's how bad that movie is. There is a guilty pleasure that is so bad it's good. This movie's not even bad. First of all, not letting me take this movie home, I'm going to call you a coward. But but so no, a good example, though, is, you know, we, we talk about the worst films ever made and why people love them. For whatever reason, people love the room. They, they swear that they honestly enjoy it. And my response is, I don't think that's true. I think we all know that's a terrible movie. You're going to point and laugh and gawk. Is that a guilty pleasure? Eh, maybe, maybe not. I think one of the worst films I've ever seen was a movie called Dracula 3000. It starred Casper Van Diem, Coolio, and Udo Kier. It is just mind-bending. It's not just bad. 
I remember realizing about 35 minutes into the movie, and it's only about 70 minutes long, I remember thinking about 35 minutes into the movie, this movie's not just bad, it's incorrect. It's wrong. You don't make movies this way. This movie is incorrect on its own face. It's just terrible. It's just a terrible movie. I don't know anyone who enjoys that movie, ironically or otherwise. And I can't imagine someone watching this this piece of rank garbage and not just immediately going, this is terrible. Why, why was this even made? Someone, yeah, sure, process of elimination. Someone likes that movie somewhere, but I don't believe they like it genuinely. I just, I just don't believe that. I have friends that do not like Rocky Horror, that do not like to sit and actively watch bad movies. Sure. But they will go to the midnight show. They will jump up and dance around and say, I don't really like this as much as I like being around people and being a part of the experience. And then those are the people I take to the late night grindhouse. Yeah, the movie is shit. We're all in on the joke. It's it's not about it being the greatest movie of all time or even being a good movie. It's a movie that exists. And at the end of the day, it was created. Somebody put time into it. So I'm going to sit and watch it for what it is. I think we can all put the stamp on the room and say, this is a meme. It might be one of the original memes of people want you to think you like it. So we're going to keep telling you how great it is. And no, you have to see it with a crowd, Lucas. If you're not part of the experience where you're throwing the stuff at the screen, you you guys went to a Rocky Horror Show one time and saw people throwing stuff at the screen. So you said, how do we get that in our movie? How do we get our audience to do that? It's a joke. And the joke's not even funny anymore. Did you ever read um, the the book that, uh, what is his name? Greg Sestero, who who was one of the main actors in The Room, wrote. It was a book called The Disaster Artist. Did you ever read that? I have not read the book. Now that you're bringing it up again, I have to put it on my list. I'm sure there's an audiobook somewhere so I can catch that in the car. I remember him talking about, or at least I, I remember the book being quoted as, no, Tommy was 100% serious the whole time. Yeah, that's his conceit throughout the entire thing. And um, I, I know there was a movie made of it, which I just I just never caught, but I read the book at one point. Um, Greg Sestero says pretty candidly, like Tommy was wholly sincere and anything he's saying afterwards about this being like a, a dark comedy, I don't buy. Okay. Well, okay. True. Okay. Fair enough. I, there's this part of me that I, I've never made a movie, right? I've never made a movie. I've never written a film. I've never tried writing a script. I don't know if I, if I could do it and I won't criticize anyone who puts in the hours and hours and hours and hours that it takes to make a film, to write a script, etc. That's It's hard work, no doubt. And, I mean, if we're being brutally honest, Tommy Wiseau has written more movies than me. He's directed more movies than me. But I can say, with 100% certainty, I'm a better filmmaker than Tommy Wiseau. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, technically speaking... I've never written a bad movie. I've never written a movie. But you you get the joke. You get the joke. I think Tommy Wiseau said it best when he was interviewed by G4, and they asked him about The Room. You know, when you ask the man to his face, you've called this film a black comedy. And without missing a beat, he says, I never said it was black comedy. It is black comedy. What? You know, if that was coming up... <laughs> You know, there's this part of me that wonders, if that was coming out of the mouth of David Lynch, would you think it was a brilliantly inspired point? 
Or would you still think, David, you've lost a plot? I don't think David Lynch would say something so absurd because he would know how dumb that sounds. (laughs) That's, That's also a valid point. That's also a valid point. I mean, you know what? I refuse to engage in validating the room any further. <laughs> I, I've never, uh, other than Dracula, So what do you think, listener? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and that having been said, my friends, our dear audience, that's our show for today. What do you think about this? What's the best way for you to decide what's worth your attention or not? Do you think there's a distinction between elevated horror and I don't know, not elevated horror. Have I let this become too big of a bee in my own personal bonnet? Let us know. You can email us, as always, at thefrightlabpodcast at gmail.com, or you can venture into the wastelands that is Twitter and follow us at fright underscore lab underscore pod. We also have a Letterboxd uh, account, which is a great app you should check out, uh, Fright Lab Pod. And Joseph, let me ask you a question. I know you've got a number of projects going on. Would you be so kind as to let our audience know where they can hear more of your work? If you are a fan of all things heavy metal, you need to check out every podcast at DiscussMetal.com. We talk about heavy metal bands. We talk about heavy metal subjects. We've even done movie commentaries in the past and i'm thinking about bringing it back maybe we do a series of quote elevated horror films and you can listen to us watch those movies and talk about them i think they call that a commentary but what i want you to do right now listen to lucas give us a five-star review give us a thumbs up whatever platform you're on right now whatever app you have installed that you found the fright lab i want to thank you for listening to this show and if you've been listening since the beginning or if you've come in along the way thank you just the same let us know what you think email the fright lab podcast at gmail.com we want to hear from you guys and if you are someone who creates scary sounds on the internet We like scary sounds, especially ones that are made and available on the internet. We want to play your scary sounds on our show. Lucas, tell everyone how much we love independent artists. You know, when you get into podcasts and you don't have a budget and you don't have a network supporting you, you start to realize how hard indie media is. But we do it because we love it. Sincerely, I mean that. I know that sounds ridiculous, but we do it because we love it. And we want to give a a chance for other independent artists to do something cool, to do something different. If you are making music that is adjacent to, related to, or part of horror, we want to hear it. And if you'll let us, we want to play it on the air. We'll give you a shout out. Again, reach us at frightlabpodcast at gmail.com. As always... The Fright Lab was written and researched by me, Lucas Shokum. It's also co-hosted and then beaten into a mostly listenable shape by the one and only Joseph Wren. We appreciate every single one of you, and we'll see you next time. Elevated horror might have to be the topic of our first live impromptu like conversation because it's bullshit right to say that this stuff is smart so it, and it's good so it's better it's well, like no it's just fucking good well you know and that's I, I, again I always go back to the argument of no one talks about elevated comedy right like if I said to you Joe this movie came out uh, that you know it's the final Robin Williams film you know it's a real elevated comedy you'd call me a fucking asshole no one would would do that I stand by the idea that some people are still just ashamed to admit 
they like action movies or horror movies or or yes. whatever. And I and okay, yeah, like I write a horror podcast. Of course I don't agree with that. But when I hear people make that argument, I just think, come on. Just admit you like it. Like is hereditary as effective a film if you don't have the ongoing little girl gets beheaded scene like take that scene out of the movie is the movie still as good because i'm okay so is it still as, okay so we need to break that into two questions is it still as good or is it still as scary those are two separate questions right because the the scary part of the film has nothing to do with that it just occurs I think that movie is still as scary because I think it's like it's smartly directed, it's smartly uh, conceived visually, it's really neat. Ari Aster is good at what he fucking does. But does this movie emotionally abuse you the way it does without her being beheaded? Hi, my name is Tommy Wazel. How are you guys doing? I'm the filmmaker. And Boy, I, I mispronounced his name. It's coming. It's coming. You're calling it a black comedy. <laughs> Is that what you set out to do originally? Well, well, let me say this way. I don't call black comedy. It is black comedy. It is it's black two comedy. two different things. Okay. And it's not <laughs> the melodrama when people get into... What the fuck does that even mean? You know, they, they say, you know, it's different between melodrama and black comedy. No, no, that's not... You have a drama and comedy. What the fuck does that mean? It was done intentionally. Okay. Oh, I, I can hear you in my head. <laughs> I, I can hear you in my head. People are giving you money to be an idiot. <laughs> Why? <laughs> I want you to put that part in where where he says, "I do not call it black comedy; it is black comedy." And I go, "What the fuck does that mean?" <laughs> put, that, put that in at the end of the episode. I'm doing it.